Welcome to the first episode of Legendary Bites, a podcast that's dedicated to two things we love, sports and brevity. I'm Charlie Ryback. And I'm Seth Miller. Each episode, we're going to bring you a bite-sized sports story in under 15 minutes that we find fascinating, important, or just absurd. With brevity in mind, let's get into it. Seth, what do we have on tap today? Today, we're going to talk about the 10th Mountain Division, a crew of mountain climbing ski soldiers that not only fought to turn the tides of World War II, but also helped birth the American ski industry that we know today. Though this is a sports podcast, we're going to dive into a little military history first because the birth of the American ski industry actually begins in Scandinavia. Scandinavia and Greece. You see, before we dive into the 10th Mountain Division, it's important to understand why they were created in the first place. Why did the U.S. need mountain climbing ski soldier winter warriors? Uh, There were two seemingly small points in the early parts of World War II that helped make the case for creating the 10th Mountain Division. Uh, The first are the Finns. So when war breaks out in Europe, uh, this is around 1939, uh, the Soviets uh, end up invading their neighbor, world's reigning uh, happiest country, Finland, in the winter. So this became known as the Winter War. And you know how they say, don't invade Russia in the winter? Well, don't invade Finland in the winter. Okay, we made it. Here we are. This sign means we are at the actual Arctic Circle. Uh, We came here because Helsinki just wasn't cold enough. Though the Finns were outnumbered, outgunned, out everything by the Soviets, they ended up using the cold winter and the snowy terrain uh, to their advantage. It's the exact kind of warfare that would happen if our home state of Minnesota ever went to war with and ultimately defeated Wisconsin. Defeated handily. Exactly. We're from the land of 10,000 lakes, Charlie and I, and in the winter, these lakes freeze over. And when that happens, maps become irrelevant. Land that wasn't supposed to even exist comes into play. So warfare in general is like a whole new ball game in the winter. Where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs> so the Soviets invaded during the dead of one of the coldest winters on record in Finland. There was little daylight, negative temperatures, and the Soviets' heavy artillery and tanks like can't move through the thick, snowy woods. Uh, whereas the scrappy Finns, they use this to their advantage. And one of the things they do, Charlie, they camouflage themselves. So these are civilian, like, civilian soldiers, essentially, with hunting rifles, and they use bed sheets and white jackets to blend into the snow to kind of avoid the, the Soviets. Okay, so they're wearing dirty duvet covers. Uh, what are the Soviets dressed in? They're, the Soviets are rocking essentially khaki uniforms. They look like suburban office workers and stick out like sore thumbs uh, against the snowy background. What are you wearing, Jake from State Farm? Uh, khakis. So these Finns in their duvet covers use guerrilla warfare to, to wear down their enemy. Uh, And the most effective method of this were the ski soldiers. They had ski soldiers, Charlie. And these ski soldiers, like, glided silently through the woods as they wreaked havoc on the uh, Soviet troops. They targeted their food, their supplies. They, like, picked them off one by one and made life miserable for the Soviets in the winter. So despite them eventually losing the winter war, 
the Finns and their mastery of winter sports did hold their own against a much larger enemy, and the U.S. took notice. Okay, so you covered Finland. Now take me to Greece. So to the mountains of Greece we go. The Greeks, this is 1943, the Greeks are fighting the invading Italians. And like the Finns, they're outnumbered, outgunned, and in this case, outpositioned. The Italians have fortified themselves in the mountains. And so what the Greeks end up doing is they use that to their advantage, and they go to the offensive. They climb like Sly Stallone, cliffhanger style, higher up than the Italians are, and essentially shove them out of the mountains. So these are two small points in the war where the Finns with their ski soldiers and the Greeks with their rock climbing uh, ended up defeating a much larger enemy and perked up the ears of uh, the U.S. kind of demonstrating that these alternative badass methods of fighting were going to be a key part to winning World War II. So now enters Minnie Dole, who's the head of the U.S. National Ski Patrol, hears about this and takes an idea to the military. Given the success that both the Finns and the Greeks have had, shouldn't the U.S. be ready to also engage in winter sports center combat? And in November of 1940, uh, the government agrees, and the Army Ski Patrol is founded. So they try to found a full platoon full of 10 divisions. Uh, due to the lack of resources and funding, the first nine of those divisions never make it off the ground, and only one ever comes to fruition, the 10th Mountain Division. Very quickly... The military is recruiting people, and they figure out that it's much easier to teach skiers and climbers how to fight than to teach fighters how to ski and climb. The old Armageddon theory. Exactly. The Armageddon theory. I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers, and he told me to shut the fuck up. So... The ski patrol sets out recruiting the best skiers that they know and are able to find from around the U.S. Ultimate montage scenario here. These ski patrollers are going to like universities, ski clubs, and mountains to recruit the best of the best skiers to fight the Nazis. I picture this as like they're riding up a chairlift with some rad skier going, you're a pretty good skier. How'd you like to be pretty good at fighting Nazis? It's, it is... I think exactly like that and completely ridiculous. So they're recruiting this group and they quickly realize they're going to need somebody that can not only command this group, but can also ski as well as or better than the rest of them. So in comes Rolf Monson. Rolf is a Norwegian-born ski jumper and cross-country skier that had immigrated to the U.S. and participated in three separate Olympics on behalf of the Americans. Um, he is chosen to be the leader. They set up a training base at Camp Hale in Colorado. And Rolf puts them through the ringer. Months of harsh training. They're sleeping outside, negative temperatures, training at 10,000 feet. They have to climb Mount Rainier with 90 pounds of gear on. For those of you who don't know, Mount Rainier is a 14er. Is a That's what we like to call it, a 14er. That is what uh, Seth and other people in the industry like to call it. So they do a stint of high-level mountain climbing in West Virginia, and they've got to be ready to go. They've got to be ready to climb mountains and do whatever they need to do. And uh, within their training, they also build huts across the Rockies where they would spend the night. Fun fact, you can spend the night there today. Those still exist. You can indeed. So after all this training, the 10th Mountain Division is this group of bona fide, badass, mountain climbing ski soldiers. And they are ready to go. And in 1943, the fighting in Italy stalled and the U.S. cannot break through the mountain defensive that the Germans and the Italians have set up. So they send in the 10th, straight to the Italian Alps, to put their training to the test. So the Germans have set up heavy artillery all through the northern Apennine mountain range in Italy. And this is what was known as the Winter Line. 
the separated northern Italy where the Nazis were with southern Italy, which was essentially free. And the U.S. couldn't really do much to break through this, this defensive position. So in comes the 10th Mountain Division with their skis and their envelays, and Operation Encore begins, which is their first foray into uh, combat. So the 10th is tasked with taking and securing Mount Belvedere from the Germans. They're given two weeks to get the job done, and they end up scaling cliffs and ridgelines that the Nazis thought was impossible and end up driving the Nazis from their positions in five days. Suck it, Nazis. Suck it, Nazis. Within four months, the 10th never failed to take an objective, and once they kind of had a position, they never gave it up. So these victories in the Italian Alps end up helping to liberate the country from the Germans, and they end up being a pivotal point in winning the war. Okay, so... Uh, spoiler alert, the U.S. wins World War II, and uh, the 10th heads home. And like many World War II veterans, they've got to kind of figure out what to do. You know, a lot of these people went to went to war when they were really young. Um, the 10th got a taste of the mountainous regions of the U.S. in their training. They saw the ski resorts all across Europe. What could they even do to possibly do something that was important is what they'd done overseas. So they set out to create the American ski industry that we know today. Seth, why don't you hit us with the list? The list. So Arapahoe Basin in Colorado, started by a 10th Mountain veteran. Aspen Ski Resorts. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. Started by a 10th Mountain veteran. Vail Ski Resort, and later the town of Vail, you know, opening after, started by a 10th veteran. Executive manager of Breckenridge, a 10th veteran. Founder of the youth ski program in Steamboat Springs, 10th veteran. Winter Park Ski Jump School. Do you know who started that, Charlie? Was it a veteran of the 10th? It was a veteran of the tent. If you look around all these Colorado resorts, there are statues everywhere of tent veterans. Even in Vermont, Stowe has statues, Aspen, Breckenridge. They all have statues commemorating the tent. 2,000 veterans of the tent end up becoming ski instructors. So skiing in the U.S. at the end of the war was reserved exclusively for the wealthy. And while that's mostly true today, the lift ticket prices for the resorts opened by the tent were dramatically lower in cost than the legacy East Coast resorts. And they included ski schools, too. So for the first time, there was a more economical path to the sport of skiing for Americans. And it wasn't just uh, the places they opened. You know, some of the technological innovations that they pioneered during the war actually completely changed the sport. So the skis that are now very easy to pop on and off, those were pioneered by the 10th. The insulated white camouflage chutes, they basically took the bedsheet designs and improved on them and created some of the most innovative winter gear that it, that has continued to be uh, built upon today. The medical evacuation techniques, like helicopter evacuations that are used to save lives today, those are all from the 10th as well. The influence on American sports even goes beyond skiing. So let's talk about good old Bill Bowerman. I remember the man, Bill Bowerman. He and I got expelled from Medford High School for brawling. The guy loved a good fight. Bill Bowerman was a major of the 10th and ends up becoming a head track coach at the University of Oregon. Uh, when he's there, again, legendary coach, one of the best of all time, um, he ends up coaching someone by the name of Phil Knight. And Phil Knight and him go on to design one of the first shoes ever made specifically for running, and then they went on to co-found Nike. Uh, Bowerman also essentially brought jogging to America. Jogging, Charlie. That's incredible. Uh, thanks, Bill. <laughs> so the influence and legacy of the 10th Mountain Division is really astounding. They were inspired by soldiers on skis wreaking havoc in the frigid woods of Finland. The 10th created a style of fighting that the U.S. has never before thought of. 
But the 10th didn't just outclimb, outmaneuver, and outfight the Nazis in the mountains of Italy. They also come home and help birth the American ski industry as we know it today. Famed resorts, ski schools, affordable ticket prices, technical innovations. The 10th ushers in this whole new era of skiing in America. And running. Don't forget running. And running. Yeah, so let's throw jogging and Nike into their accomplishments as well. It's hard to really give the 10th as much credit as they deserve, but if you ever find yourself in the Colorado backcountry, you could stop into one of the mountain huts inspired by their training. And as you sit there, enjoying a bourbon and a great view, take a moment to appreciate the people that risked and lost their lives so that we could be free to ski, climb, and jog in peace. Thank you to our producer, Patrick Buddy, to Jesse Rose for his design talents, and to Bill Bowerman for commercializing jogging. Follow us on all things social, at LegendaryBytes underscore. That's at LegendaryBytes underscore for a lot more interesting nuggets from each story. Do you have a great story? Shoot us an email at LegendaryBytes at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And finally, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to get more great 15-minute stories on sports, history, and everything in between.